foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. That was Emma's Revolution. My name is Michelle Elner and I'm part of Code Pink's Latin American campaign. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented to you by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.9 FM in Houston, and many other community stations. We are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at www.codepink.org slash radio, where you will find all our episodes from episode one to our most recent. Today on Code Pink Radio, during the first half hour, we will talk about the Venezuelan cargo plane seized by Argentinian authorities on the request of the United States. So on June 6, 2022, a 747 cargo aircraft belonging to Entrasur, which is a subsidiary of Venezuelan state-owned airline Conviasa, landed in Buenos Aires, Argentina, bringing auto parts from Querétano in Mexico to an Argentine supplier of the Volkswagen Group. And this aircraft was unable to refuel in Buenos Aires due to U.S. sanctions, putting the crew's life in danger. That plane left uh, for Montevideo on June 8, but the Uruguayan authorities refused access, and it flew back to Argentina. A judge in Argentina ordered the plane to be detained in the light of an investigation, and as of now, the aircraft and its crew remain stranded in Argentina. Uh, we have to say that there is no formal accusation of any illegal um, activity or wrongdoing, uh, but it's still nevertheless stranded in Argentina. So I'm thrilled to dive into this lawfare against Venezuela with our guest, Carlos Ron who is the Vice Minister, Venezuela's Vice Minister for North America. Thank you so much, Carlos, for being here with us. Please tell us a little bit more about this plane, who it belongs to, what was the purpose of this trip, and all you can tell us about this case. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Kulpink, for this opportunity. Um, we're going to be very happy to um, talk about this uh, issue very unfortunate because, uh, like you said, for two months now, we've had uh, one of a, a airplane that belongs to a uh, state-owned uh, Venezuelan airline. It's been retained illegally. 
you can say it's been hijacked basically uh, in Argentina. Uh, and along with this crew of 19 people that are still for two months have been, you know, in, in Argentina, uh, waiting for this issue to be resolved. Um, basically, um, authorities, uh, court authorities are telling us that there is um, some sort of ongoing investigation deriving from U.S. Uh, sanctions or unilateral coercive measures. Um, but there is no formal accusation of anything. I mean, there there has been there hasn't been any formal charge of you know, any illicit or any wrongdoing of either by uh, the aircraft itself or by uh, any of the crew members. Yet, because of this issue uh, of you know them being somehow tied uh, to U.S. sanctions, we we are still you know not able to have these people back or to regain uh, possession of the airplane that is there. Now, what I think, you know, what is important for listeners to, to take into consideration is that this is, this is an aircraft. Uh, it's a very large aircraft. It's a cargo plane used for uh, different uh, objectives. I mean, we, we, we've had, uh, we've been using this uh, for humanitarian reasons, for example. Uh, Venezuela was able to transport its vaccines a lot of the medical supplies uh, from around the world after it, it you know, made the, the acquisition of this plane and started using it uh, during the pandemic to be able to bring things to Venezuela that no other airline would you know, provide or provide that service for us because um, we were under U.S. sanctions. So this was a tool, basically, that allowed us for you know, humanitarian purposes uh, to be used to, to confront the, the pandemic. And also to help other countries in, in our policy of uh, solidarity. For example, um, you mentioned that the airplane was detained uh, in June uh, 8th in, in, uh, in Argentina, but the airplane was actually coming back from Mexico where it had uh, picked up a commercial cargo, but it, it had started its trip originally in Suriname after we had sent uh, some humanitarian aid to that country uh, in the middle of, uh, you know, some floods uh, that were going on uh, there. So it's a plane, like like I said, that, that serves dual purposes. You know, when once the humanitarian load was was uh, given to Suriname, then it, it went uh, over to Mexico so they could do that commercial route. And this is important because, you know, we have to emphasize this is not just a commercial plane. It does... It does practice, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of these uh, activities in order to sustain the cost of the other activities that also this also involves humanitarian activities. Now, like I said, uh, this is a this is a story that's very tragic because for two months now we've had uh, not only the the loss of the airplane, but we're very concerned about the families, you know, about, about the people, the workers that have been unable to see their families for two months. They have been staying at, you know, they have been placed in a hotel with a court order not to leave the country. Their passports have even been held from them. I mean, they're, they're, they don't have access to their passports. And basically, we're waiting for uh, some, uh, for the courts to finally say that these people can go back to, to their homes. Now, under at no time has there been any formal accusation of any wrongdoing. So... It is unexplainable 
that just because uh, uh, Argentinian courts are trying to over-comply with U.S. sanctions, these 19 crew members are being held, you know, basically against their will in, uh, in Argentina. So one of the arguments that are used is that this aircraft is an Iranian-Venezuelan aircraft. Can you explain a little bit more about this? Sure. The, first of all, let me say this is a, uh, this this airplane is 100% Venezuelan owned. At one point in time, it was uh, it was owned by uh, an Iranian airline, and there was a purchase through another uh, company, and eventually became Venezuelan owned. Before it was an Iranian airplane, it was a French uh, aircraft, French owned company. Nobody's taking any actions against the French, you know. Uh, so again, this is this is part of that viciousness. Or, or that trying, you know, the, an attempt to criminalize uh, whatever Venezuela is doing, or whatever, or even whatever Iran does, whatever countries that have independent parts from the United States do, that somehow, uh, you know, uh, they try to criminalize it. And because Venezuela purchased this airplane from uh, Iranian, because some of the crew members that are professionals training Venezuelan uh, professionals to operate uh, the aircraft are from Iran as well, then, you know, they, they blew this up and they're trying to, and, and this is very interesting because there's, there's a media operation going on where you, if you if you look at many news outlets in Argentina and in the U.S., they're basically trying to, uh, you know, promote a narrative where there's something wrong or there was something tied to terrorism or, or to some wrongdoing uh, with the plane, but nobody has presented a single piece of evidence. Um, Argentinian authorities have said that they have no evidence that ties the airplane to any wrongdoing or, or the crew to any wrongdoing, but there's a whole lot of speculation. There's a lot of, a lot of myth going on uh, in the media that are trying to somehow criminalize this and, and you know, shed this... Uh, you know, put the plane in the spotlight uh, and, and kind of make people think collectively, you know, that there's something wrong when there's actually not a single shred of evidence that has been presented. What are the uh, uh, the international treaties that have been, uh, that are being violated with this uh, detention? Well, so, 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 this is interesting to, to tell you a little bit about how the tension took place uh, because basically the you know the airplane was flying in, into Argentina, then uh, it, it needed to refuel, and uh, you know it it, it was it, it attempted to go because of climate conditions you know the, it sort of went out of its uh, um, prepared route, uh, so it, it attempted to go to Uruguay to uh, to load a um, fuel. Now, on its way there, because of these uh, warnings issued by the U.S. and that were taken up by other countries such as Paraguay and Uruguay, um, basically the, the aircraft was told in air that it could not uh, land in Uruguay to refuel and it had to turn back uh, to Argentina. Now, I say this because it was a very, it was a very dangerous operation. It went below uh, the levels that are, you know, that are uh, registered on the, or, the, or that are agreed upon 
in the Chicago Civil Aviation uh, Convention, which which you know is part of international uh, agreements, uh, putting the whole crew of 19 people in danger because you know if, if they ran out of fuel, if they didn't have enough fuel to come back, you know we could have had a, a, a catastrophe. Now, why I say this because what, what I want to point out is that if it were not for the overcompliance uh, that people, companies, uh, even countries, you know, take when uh, an airplane or, or, or when anything is related to Venezuela as a sanctioned country, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I mean, it, it was really a, the issue that this plane was a Venezuelan-owned plane, that there were some questions about, you know, its former ownership by Iran, and they were willing to risk people's lives in order, you know, uh, just to, you know, try to comply with uh, these in fear that the U.S. might take, uh, you know, some sort of uh, punishment to the companies that would refuel it or the or the, you know, the, the airport that would allow the plane to, to land, etc. So this practice of, you know, condemning people, things, uh, you know, aircrafts, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very dangerous. Because there's nothing, there's no sanction on that plane itself. There's no sanction on the airline Entrasur, which runs, uh, uh, you know, the, the airplane. There was no sanction on any of the passengers or crew members. But because the countries, Iran and Venezuela, are somehow under U.S. sanction regimes, then, then people are not willing to refuel, putting people's lives at risk. People are not willing to allow them to land and so forth. This is a very dangerous practice that could affect real people, not, you know, the leaders and, you know, the, the way uh, they, they always say, you know, that sanctions don't affect the uh, general public or sanctions only affect uh, specific people that want to, to attack or to condemn and so forth. But, you know, none of these people in the, in the airline, in the, in the crew, uh, are, have been targeted by U.S. sanctions. So you're putting other people's lives at risk. Uh, but uh, we we read, we heard that the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice asked uh, for permission to confiscate the the plane, uh, and it's talking about links to international terrorist groups. And uh, what can you say about this? Again, there has been no shred of evidence ever presented. I mean, and 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 I can tell you, uh, you know. This is uh, an aircraft that is belongs to uh, uh, a Venezuelan airline that is doing commercial and humanitarian uh, uh, trips. There's, of course, no tie to terrorism. We're, we don't go around. We are not into the practice of going around promoting regime change or, you know, putting people on on, on lists of terrorists. Or we, we don't do that. We don't have that practice in Venezuela. We respect other countries' uh, you know uh, sovereignty and self determination, and and what what it is though is that you know I think uh, we can we can understand this as part of an attempt to hurt uh, Venezuela, the Venezuelan airlines, all the you know state Venezuelan airlines, because at the end of the day, you know this generated other problems. It's generated that other air, other airports in in other neighboring countries don't want to deal with other Venezuelan uh, national airlines. So uh, Conviasa, which is the parent company of Entrasur, has also been affected in its commercial passenger routes. Uh, when Conviasa was uh, an, an, air, 
an airline that was actually growing in the past uh, couple of years during the pandemic. It was expanded in its services. It was, you know, once again, uh, you know, taking on, uh, uh, proving its its uh, commercial performance. And, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, this case comes up and it's going to have, of course, some uh, damage on that uh, airline's commercial uh, development and, and, and performance as well. So, you know, this, this is the typical attempt by U.S. sanctions to, you know, punish uh, the country to, you know, to, to do something that would, would eventually, uh, would eventually uh, hurt uh, the Venezuelan economy. That that would again, you know, be be, you know, part of that that collective punishment that that they impose once sanctions hit uh, a country or, or people. Yeah. So, but why does it say that uh, it violates? uh export control laws can you explain that well they 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 they're talking about uh, again uh this is an issue that i think that we have a uh, uh, that we contest because these are internal rules that the united states is uh supplying uh and and that have no extraterritoriality and we have you know we we did all the paperwork uh necessary to purchase the plane uh, I don't think there is, this is something that, that must be contested in courts because I don't think they have any validity to that claim. And if they did, you know, the, the aircraft wouldn't have been flying all these months before and through, you know, throughout the world. This, this is an aircraft that has, that has gone, you know, all over the, the, the continent here, you know, it has made, uh, trips to Haiti, it has made trips to Suriname, it have, it has made trips to Mexico, it has made trips to Europe, to, um, to, to Russia. Uh, so, so we have, we have all these, uh, different, uh, you know, it was performing this way, um, in, in all these other countries without anybody ever, you know, questioning the, the purchase or, or how anything was made. It was only when they were able to, uh, pressure the Argentinian, uh, uh, judicial system, uh, where, where they found let's say, you know, people receptive to, to that U.S. pressure that they were able to down, you know, uh, keep the plane uh, hijacked, basically. But if if we were doing something illegal, we wouldn't have been able to fly all these months throughout the world as we did. So he, who are these uh, judicial actors in Argentina? So there's, so so what we've seen so far is that different court uh, um, uh, there's a judge, and, and of course the you know the, the the attorney general's office that is that or that is you know uh, the prosecutor's office. Sorry, I should say uh, that is trying to you know to push uh, this case. But there's also a lot of pressure uh, from um, groups that have traditionally uh, also uh, lobbied against uh, Iran or against uh, Venezuela and even against popular. Uh, democratic forces in Argentina itself. I mean, right now we're seeing uh, a very uh, complicated uh, internal uh, issue in, in Argentina where the courts are even turning against its own uh, vice president. Uh, so, so you see that, that the, it seems like there's a, a line of uh, sort of complicity among the same people that um, that have presented this case or they're arguing against uh, the, the airplane and 
their political objectives within Argentina, which are, you know, of a political uh, nature. So, Carlos, do you think that Israel has any role in this pressure against Venezuela, against this plane? Yes, I mean, we saw that the government of Israel became involved. Uh, there was a, they issued, uh, its embassy issued in, uh, a statement where, you know, it was also feeding into that narrative of, you know, the airplane having, uh, having to do with, with you know, some illegal activities. And also, you know, this, but this comes, I think we have to look at, you know, a, a larger uh, context. Uh, you know, there was some, uh, there was a bombing attempt in, in 1994 against some uh, Israeli-tied uh, associations in Argentina, where um, the government of Israel and some of, of these uh, institutions have blamed the government of Iran uh, as having something to do with these uh, attacks. Now, uh, to my understanding, there, there has been no uh, formal evidence of linking the government of Iran to any of these actions. But there there has always been a large pressure by Israeli-backed uh, organizations and Israeli-backed lobby uh, to, to attack or to pressure anything at all that is related to Iran. So given that this aircraft at one point in time used to belong to Iran, they want to somehow uh, do this and they want to, you know, they, they, they want to uh, take control of the aircraft, but also they want to hurt Venezuela because, as, as you know, we, we broke relations with Israel uh, after some of its uh, massive attacks on the people of, of Palestine. So we've had, you know, so, so, so I think, you know, the same animosity that Israel has had against uh, Iran, it also uh, has had some similar animosity, at least towards Venezuela, for having broken those relations in defense of the people. Palestine. So it's no surprise to us that it's the pro-Israel lobby uh, that is somehow tied to these accusations. And then in the same way that it wants to, you know, blame or hurt Iran, it's trying to blame or hurt Venezuela. And, and you know, from this, uh, you, you see in the, in the, in the fake news uh, atmosphere how people start talking about you know, that this, uh, you know, trying to see if this plane was, was carrying, uh, some dangerous cargo or something that, you know, that would allow for some, uh, some attack or something to the effect when actually the car was, you know, commercial cargo that was, you know, uh, uh, handed over to, to the company that, you know, that bought it. It's Volkswagen. It's, uh, you know, a, a car company that nobody, I think, has accused of terrorism. Lately, that I, I remember, so you know, there's nothing that that you could uh, argue, you know, that, that even you know, with the cargo, with the airplane, but it's part of that construction of a narrative that's used to, you know, attack countries that have a different position from uh, what the United States wants or what uh, you know the interests of Israel. And finally, Carlos, what can you tell us about the crew members of this plane, especially the Venezuelan crew members? Well, you know, uh, um, this has been a very unfortunate, uh, like I said before, it's a very unfortunate case that, you know, uh, these are 19 people that are being held, uh, you know, against their will without any accusation. Uh, you know, there's a woman, for example, within the members of the crew who is the mother of three children. She has not been able to see her three children in, you know, in, 
in two months. And you can imagine uh, all the difficulties that, you know, these are young children. I mean, these are, these are they're not grown-ups. These are young adults uh, that, that, are, that are teenagers and so forth that, that are... Um, that have been left and are being taken care of by you know neighbors and family members because their mother hasn't been able to come to come back to their homes in two months, uh, and this, this this I think goes to show that um, something that is even more worrisome that sanctions uh, from the U.S. don't target leaders but they the, they target people everyday people when you see that. Um, any public servant, basically, from Venezuela, anybody that is working in any state company, in any uh, sort of you know public uh, institution, can easily become a target of U.S. sanctions. Well, I think there's something very wrong with that. And I think there's something very inhumane. There's something that you know that, that I think uh, has to be looked at because these are regular everyday people that are working, you know, that are working class people that they're they're carrying out their you know their normal jobs. Nobody asked this crew, the crew members, what their political position was. If you know, no, they, they they might as well not have even any you know political uh, participation of any sort, and and they become affected uh, by these sanctions. So you have, I mean, you have all you know eighteen other people, but you know you also have you also have the you know the case of of, of this mother, for example, that you know. She was doing her job. She was working for her family. And now she is held against her will without her passport uh, in a hotel that the airline, by the way, has to pay. It's not paid by, you know, the Argentinian authorities. This is money that, you know, that, that is also being uh, spent by, by the airline. So it's another form of punishment to the airline. And that eventually, you know, we never know. Uh, we still don't know when uh, this woman working class woman is going to be able to come back to her family and of course there, there's and then the men of course also are fathers and have children and have their families as well and again so you know this has nothing to do with politics this has nothing at all to do with terrorism whatsoever i mean the only the only form of terrorism is what's being perpetrated against these families by these uh you know sanctions that they're the ones that you know that that they are being held captive without any uh, charges and without any knowledge of when they'll be able to, you know, to leave. So that isn't some sort of terrorism. I don't know what it is. So I think, you know, we, we should really uh, be concerned about, uh, you know, the effects that these measures have, about how, you know, powerful these sanctions can be when countries do things because they fear, uh, you know, other measures that will be taken by the United States against them, uh, because company, a company not wanting, I mean, it, it is very serious when a con, when a company can really, you know, sit down and say, well, we're not going to refuel an airplane because it is, we fear more what the U.S. can do to our business than what could happen to an airplane that's, you know, in the middle of the air and, you know, we don't know if it's going to have enough fuel to be able to land somewhere. When we when we do that, when we make that choice, and our choice is to, you know, respect extraterritorial uh, sanctions, we have really lost a lot of our humanity, and that's something that is very dangerous.
Sí, son los hijos del sur. Aquilín, unas cuantas barras por Bolívar. Así es como lo hacemos desde América Latina. Bolívar, una idea, un hombre que trasciende a un pueblo. Bolívar es el barrio, Bolívar es el llano, Bolívar son los andes del cielo precolombiano, Bolívar eres tú, Bolívar tus hermanos, Bolívar soy yo y nuestras madres que lucharon. Bolívar es el barrio, Bolívar es el llano, Bolívar son los andes del cielo precolombiano, Bolívar eres tú, Bolívar tus hermanos, Bolívar soy yo y nuestros padres que lucharon. Bolívar somos, bolivariano nos quedamos, no le tememos al imperio, ja, los derrotamos por esta sangre caliente que corre por nuestros brazos, ansias de libertad que alumbran nuestros fracasos, como todo buen bolivariano, le sigo rapeando a la tierra que más amo, pa' que cuando me escuches un puño se haga en tus manos y defiendas con honor la tierra en la que Bolívar estamos. es el barrio, Bolívar es el llano, Bolívar son los andes del cielo de colombiano, Bolívar eres tú. Bolívar tus hermanos, Bolívar soy yo y nuestras madres que lucharon. Bolívar es el barrio, Bolívar es el llano, Bolívar son los andes del cielo de colombiano. Bolívar eres tú, Bolívar tus hermanos, Bolívar soy yo y nuestros padres que lucharon. Bolívar en América todavía tiene que hacer con la tiranía descabezada a los pies y un manojo de pueblos libres en el puño. Somos Carabobo, Boyacá, Pichincha y Ayacucho. La juventud que grita el futuro es ahora. La lucha de clase como motor de nuestra historia. Juventud que resiste porque no quiere más colonia. En la que estudia para fortalecer nuestra memoria. Bolívar es el barrio, Bolívar es el llano. Bolívar son los andes del cielo colombiano. Bolívar eres tú, Bolívar tus hermanos. Bolívar soy yo y nuestras madres que lucharon. Bolívar es el barrio, Bolívar es el llano. Bolívar son los andes del cielo recolombiano Bolívar eres tú, Bolívar tus hermanos Bolívar soy yo y nuestros padres que lucharon Es el barrio, Bolívar eres tú Tus hermanos, soy yo Nuestras madres que lucharon Thank you for that update, Michelle. Welcome back. I'm Samantha Weary, an organizer with the Latin America team at Code Pink. You're listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. Now I would like to introduce our next guest, uh, Reverend Chris Ferguson, a longtime activist and solidarity ally to the Cuban people. He has worked with the Cuban churches and Canadian NGOs since 1991. He has played an integral role in efforts to lift the blockade and help Spurton Act. As the World Council of Churches representative to the UN, he advocated for the Cuban people and was awarded the Order of Friendship Medal in 2016 in recognition of his work with the Cuban churches and the people. Uh, Reverend Ferguson continues to play an important role in the Cuban Solidarity Movement by supporting the Colombian peace process in Havana. Reverend Ferguson is going to talk to us about uh, Cuba's designation as a state sponsor of terrorism, which was imposed by the Trump administration and has made life in the island incredibly difficult. So thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Reverend Ferguson. Um, Reverend Ferguson, can you start by telling us what this designation is and how it came about? Yes, I mean, the, um, the designation uh, that is an action of the U.S. 
um, administration, of course, finds its its uh, its deeper meaning as uh, a kind of a social, uh, sorry, a, a foreign policy tool, and um, uh, within the, uh, the 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 history of uh, the so-called declared war on terror. And um, within that, it is one of the uh, the mechanisms that that is used, um, and uh, to to uh, basically as a foreign policy tool to in, impose sanctions on 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 countries um, that uh, are designated as sponsoring terrorists. And the list of uh, of con of uh, groups that sponsor terrorists uh, are uh, in keeping with. Uh, U.S. foreign policy objectives, and often are groups that are involved in legitimate uh, struggles for uh, peace and justice in the Middle East. For instance, we see a whole list of uh, of groups that are on the terrorist list that, in fact, are either legitimate political parties or um, uh, the NGOs. In fact, that uh, they contribute to uh, nonviolent peace processes. Uh, what happened here uh, was uh, that you, you, I think everybody will know that uh, um, Cuba has recently been involved uh, as the host country for two peace processes. One, a successful peace process between the Colombian government and the um, FARC-EP, the, um, uh, and that, um, that process uh, took place uh, uh, almost entirely in Havana, and um, uh, the uh, Cuban um, uh, government and people provided a neutral and safe space so that uh, a negotiated solution to uh, five decades worth of, uh, of conflict uh, could find a, a way forward. Following that, another one of the, uh, the uh, uh, insurgent rebel groups, the ELN, um, uh, initiated uh, a peace process as well. Remember, the peace process was with one particular group and now secondly with another. Uh, in the course of those uh, negotiations, of course, Cuba once again offered its, uh, its ho um, hospitality and space. Under international law, there were several um, parameters one of those parameters was Cuba offering uh, its situation as a host country due to neutrality. There are other host countries and other friends of the process, all who had guaranteed to follow uh, processes of neutrality. One of those things is the protection and security for the negotiators. Um, the negotiators, of course, are designated as such and, uh, and enjoy a protected status. In the, in, in the course of this peace process, the, um, uh, the uh, negotiations were cut off um, by the government of President Duque of Colombia in, in response to an action of one of the groups of the LN. And uh, the peace process was, was uh, totally interrupted. Uh, and once again, the, um, the Colombia government re, uh, revoked any uh, uh, recognition of the um, negotiators, the legitimate negotiators, and demanded their extradition back to Colombia so they could stand trial. The Colombian, uh, the Cuban government, uh, invoking the guarantees they had given for the security of the negotiators and for their role as a as a neutral country. Um, 
refused and uh, said that there is no context for an extradition and it would uh, betray the concept of uh, a neutral host country for a, a peace negotiation process. Uh, in response to that, um, added to all the other uh, uh, sanctions and uh, economic, political, military pressure on Cuba, including the blockade, the uh, Trump government uh, used the mechanism of a state that sponsored uh, terrorists or that hosted terrorist groups uh, on the um, Cuban government. Now, very importantly to understand, this isn't just kind of international name calling. This means that other uh, governments, although it's an action of the American administration, um, other governments are constrained if they want to maintain relationships with, with the Americans, not to exchange credits, financial guarantees, and so on. It's, a, it's an additional and very brutal kind of sanction that came on top of other sanctions. This is uh, including, and especially in the context of the pandemic, has really disabled um, the uh, Cuban uh, government in many ways to apply some of the workarounds they did through uh, obtaining credit and other, uh, other financial and trade relationships um, in the already narrow field because of the blockade. Now, one important thing to say is this effect is from the uh, point of view of the Cuban people, it was, a, they were in fact punished for uh, respecting international law, punished for trying to provide a framework uh, for safety and security for non-violent solutions to a negotiated peace process. And so that all the um, understand this was a move that not only was an uh, attack against the, the Cuban people by its consequences, but also set a chill against them, the idea that any country that went in against the interests of the United States in trying to sponsor uh, and use their good offices for a nonviolent peace process would be uh, would be punished. And so it has a chilling effect, not only in the region, not only in Cuba, but actually internationally. And um, the, 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 the last thing I would say, and sorry for all these long answers, is people will know that there's a new government in, in uh, Colombia, and uh, one that is committed to peace. In fact, one of the understandings of the government is the search for total peace, a peace that goes beyond the end of conflict, but includes the social, economic, political, cultural dimensions of peace for all actors. And, um, and in that context, the government, again, uh, is, uh, is uh, uh, starting a peace process with the, with the LN, uh, that uh, definitely there is a possibility that, uh, that Cuba could be the host for part of the process, although this process will be different because part of the negotiations will probably also happen within uh, uh, Colombia, not simply outside in a safe haven, but it is, um, in other words, there is absolutely no reason for the Biden uh, administration not to take this as an incredible uh, opportunity, not only to lift the um, uh, the status, uh, remove uh, Cuba from the status of uh, countries that support um, terrorists, but that um, also to reframe the relationship with Cuba in the same spirit as they're trying to suggest that they want to be a force for negotiated peace in the region, that any disagreements for, for Cuba should now not be dealt with by imposed sanctions, but through negotiations, uh, constructive engagement and dialogue. 
So there's a double opportunity here for the Biden administration. One, to correct a flagrant injustice, and by correcting that injustice to uh, give a vision of uh, regional peace, and then also change and recast the way they themselves are going to be involved in initiatives for peace. We saw that uh, negotiations were refused in the Ukrainian-Russia situation. It's time to turn that back and in the, in, within the context of the Americas uh, say that negotiations can do and must work. Thank you so much for um, that very clear context of the situation in Colombia and Cuba. Um, my next question has to do with the negotiation. Since Cuba is on this terrorism list, would the U.S. government or any organization be able to support these peace talks um, with the with the Colombian government and the ELN uh, guerrilla group, given their status as as um, being on this terror list? I mean, the 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 um, it is definitely an impediment. Um, uh, I, I I don't want to be uh, too glib. But of course, this wouldn't be the only time that the United States was contradictory in their foreign policy. So one supposes they could both support the peace talks and keep Cuba on the list. That would be an absurd situation. And because they have uh, indicated their strong desire to support the peace talks, one would think that, um, so when you ask the question, could they do this or that? Certainly it would be um, very uh, inconsistent and would be impediment to the peace process to not do everything in their power to uh, uh, support uh, the uh, country of choice of the uh, of both parties as a, as a neutral safe space. Other countries, by the way, have um, offered space, uh, including uh, Chile, uh, Spain. Recently, uh, the Americans, have, as they say, have indicated that they want to be friends or supporters or sponsors of of the negotiations. So, what the United States can do and what they should do, I think, uh, might might be two different things. What they definitely should do is get behind this process by removing uh, Cuba from the list. Thank you. Um, and how is um, this designation any different with any different than the already existing embargo on Cuba? Well, as I say, this this is a different mechanism, and it, it would be like, so now, you one might get tired, and I'm not enough of an expert. I mean, if you can imagine, I cannot name, imagine this, someone who knows the situation now, I cannot name all of the 450 some odd measures that Trump has opposed as punitive actions against Cuba. So it's a good question. There has been so many attempts besides the original economic blockade, all the applications of, of um, Helms-Burton and its, its other manifestations that to try and get down to what specifically this is, it is through another entry point creating a lack of access to international uh, credits and trade concessions. It closed yet another door. So it's similar in kind, it's specific in terms of effect, and it is, um, uh, as accumulation, closed one of the, the, the remaining oxygen lines. Thank you for that. And then um, one of the last questions here, um, 
Reverend, since you've done so much um, work with the churches, uh, what role does the church play in all of this? And what can the people, what can people from the U.S. and Canada do um, to support the Cuban people and um, push the Biden administration to repeal this designation? Well, um, first of all, it's important to say that um, that um, the churches that are part of the um, the the uh, uh, Church Council of Cuba uh, have uh, excellent relationships with many of the uh, historic uh, uh, Protestant and uh, Catholic churches in the United States, and that there is a firm firm bond uh, with denominations. People will know, like the the um, the United Church of Christ, the um, the Presbyterian Church and Methodist Church, Anglican Church, and so on, or Episcopal Church. I think the churches, uh, um, through also uh, organizations like the um, um, the uh, Council of Churches of Christ of the United USA, and and others, have had long um, standing positions uh, against the the embargo and for normalizing relationships and for extending um, uh, relationships between the two countries of peace and justice. And so, what the churches can do, uh, you're actually the one I think that can 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 spell it out. But the churches can be clear actors in their own constituencies, um, locally and uh, regionally and nationally, in speaking to their uh, representatives and senators and uh, and demanding an end of this uh, uh, in the name of uh, of peace and justice. It's important to say that um, that there's a Christian injunction. So for the churches to be artisans of peace and to and to support peace, and that what is interesting here is the action that's being called for is to actually help and uh, not to punish those that would seek it. So I think churches should mobilize. They should study about the issue. Understand you might be able to inform some people about resource material that's available to learn about the issue. And they should be politically active, uh, uh, particularly as uh, approaching the uh, midterm elections to be very clear uh, that it is in the interest of the American people and all people that are seeking peace with justice to support wherever it is possible, negotiated dialogue solutions and uh, constructive engagement uh, for peace for uh, the whole of the uh, region. Thank you so much for that. Um, Okay, so here at Code Pink, we have been working on a campaign to get Cuba off the state sponsor of terrorism list. Uh, we know that um, that this is well within the pre well well within President Biden's power to alleviate Cuba's difficulties and take it off this list. I'm Terry Matson of Code Pink's Latin America team and host of Code Pink's weekly YouTube program, What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean. You are listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. On August 22nd, an Argentine federal prosecutor requested a 12-year prison sentence for Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, the country's former president and current vice president, on corruption charges related to public works. He also requested a lifetime ban on Fernández de Kirchner from holding public office.
The sentence will be known in months, according to local media, although the vice president could appeal it to higher courts, which could take years to reach a final verdict. On Twitter, Fernandez de Kirchner, who testified in court in 2019, said she was facing a media judicial firing squad and not a constitutional court. Now let's hear from Franco Metasa, Director General of Foreign Affairs for the Argentine National Senate. Let me tell you who is Cristina Kirchner. You correctly said that she's our actual vice, pre vice president. She's the former president. She was twice president. The first time she has been president, is, it was in 20. Um, 27, 2007, uh, she won that election with 45%, I guess. Here in Argentina, you need to get at least 45% to become president in, in, in first round, not going to ballotage. Uh, she got 46, 47, something like that. So she was president. After she was president years, in the first round. There was no need to the go to a second round. round. That's significant. Yeah. No, okay. no, no need. The first yeah. round. That's significant. Four years later, four years later, after four, four years of, 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 of being president, she, won, uh, she went to election uh, again, and she won with 54%. And the second one, the, 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 the second uh, candidate, only had 12 or 13, more than 40% of difference between her and the second. So that's the way Christina Kirchner get, uh, become president <laughs> twice and now vice president. Christina Kirchner is uh, the most important leader, political leader uh, nowadays in Argentina. She's the only one that if she goes to election again, she's going to, to win probably because she has a lot of votes. Uh, so they don't want her because next year we have elections again. So they don't want her to become candidate because they know she's gonna win. So since they cannot beat her in free elections, they need to proscript her. That's the 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 objective, the, the aim, uh, this, this uh, lawfare has. It's not something against her. It's not that the uh, prosecutors and the justice do not like Christina, uh, personally do not like Christina. It has to do uh, to, make, to, 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 to insert fear in all of the political class, in all of the political activists, political leaders, uh, the youth, the youth, mm -hmm. uh, in order to do not mess with big power, do not mess with IMF, do not mess with corporation, do not mess with uh, dictatorship, do not mess with that because this is the end. So it's not personally against Christina, it's against Argentinian people. That's mm -hmm. how we understand it. You can watch or listen to the full in-depth conversation with Franco entitled Argentina's Vice President Faces a Media Judicial Firing Squad on Code Pink YouTube and or Apple Podcasts. 
Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say Code War, we say Code Pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say Code War, we say Code Pink. Code Pink for freedom, Code Pink for peace, Code Pink to hunger. We say code pink. We say code pink. And they say code brumsville. We say code pink.